genuinely, let me say this. Uh, you guys, as a congregation, you're just, you're truly the best. I know a lot of pastors. I don't know any pastors that have it as good as we do at Pulpit Rock. You have been so gracious to us as, uh, as pastors. You love each other so well. You love us well. And I just thank you for doing that. And I want to encourage you as Thomas gets back just to, to keep loving on that guy. Uh, he needs that. So thank you for doing that for us. We're continuing today with our Grace People series. Um, we're talking about this idea that a lot of times in our relationships, what's most needed isn't love, but it's actually grace. It's this ability to give people something better than what they deserve. That, that actually is the fuel for relationships. Um, we, we've said a few times that that starts, our ability to do that really starts with first receiving grace from God, and that empowers us to give it to other people. Central to that just receiving grace peace is rest. Rest is an experience of grace. And we wanted to make sure we talked about that during this series. And so we've invited a guy that I know, I've known for a few years and just love. His name is Wade Brown. He's been a pastor for many, many years. Uh, right now he works with an organization called Pastor Serve, which equips local pastors just to live spiritually healthy lives and, and encourages them to rest as a part of that health. Uh, he has really been uh, a voice that has shaped our view of rest here at Pulpit Rock and just this whole idea of sabbatical and that that thing that we're doing. Um, for me personally, he's just been a friend and a mentor and a, a leadership coach and just an encouragement to me. Um, and more than anything else, here's what you need to know about this guy, Wade. He is a man that just exudes the grace of God. And in any situation, no matter how complex or how uh, confusing, he steps in and just embodies this idea of grace for other people. And I just have, have marveled at that and have benefited from it personally. And I know you're going to benefit from what he has to share this morning. So let's welcome up Wade Brown. Well, good morning, Pulpit Rock. So good to see you here this morning. Uh, I'm going to make sure that my wife listens to that last part of what Jonathan just shared. I think that would be good for her heart and our marriage, right? No, it is, uh, seriously, it is good to be with you here this morning. I realize you're just getting to know me. I'm, I'm basically a complete stranger to probably 99.9% .9 of you. Uh, but I have been admiring you as I've served as a pastor over the years in different capacities in this community. I've been admire, admiring you from a distance. And I'm grateful for this faith community in Colorado Springs called Pulpit Rock Church. And I've gotten to know Jonathan, obviously, and Thomas and some of your other pastoral staff members. And just know this, I, I'm not here often, obviously, in this church, but I am a huge fan from a little more uh, of a distance, and uh, it is good to be with you here this morning. You know, I, I love the series you've been in, and I absolutely love the topic that I had the privilege of getting to teach on here this morning, but let's not jump to ridiculous conclusions. Just because I love the topic of rest does not mean that I've got it, got it dialed in perfectly. Is, is, is that fair to say? And, and I'm going to take it one step further to say this, you also, do not have it dialed in perfectly. I think we are often challenged by this idea of rest 
And I think part of it might be a little bit of a biblical confusion related to the idea of rest. Some of us look at the Old Testament and think that was yesteryear, that was long, long ago, and land far, far away. And yes, it's the same God that we know today who kind of put this stuff in effect in the Old Testament. But the idea of rest, and especially Sabbath rest, seems to be a little elusive for us. And maybe we think that's outdated, that's dusty, that's antiquated language. How does that apply to us during the New Testament covenant when we think about rest? We'll explore a little bit of that today, but here's another reason I think we struggle with the idea of rest. I think it's very counter to our culture today. And maybe you've said some of the sound bites that I'm going to give here in just a moment. Maybe you've said these yourself. Which, which would be indicative of it being counter to our culture today, or at least you've heard somebody else, you've overheard somebody else mention some of these sound bites before. So here we go. Here's the first. My job is demanding. I work for a demanding boss or supervisor. Footnote here, if that person is with you, do not give them eye contact right now. That would be very awkward, right? But implied in that is I don't have time to rest. Secondly, my wife and I have four young kids at home. That's got to be some of you in this room. We've got four young kids at home. We're always carting them to this place, that occasion, this event, that sporting event, whatever it may be. Are you kidding me? We don't have time to rest. That's a fantasy. And then thirdly, I can't slow down. People will view me as lazy, slothful. Another one, rest doesn't contribute to my company's bottom line. And this has got to be my favorite because it hits very close to home where I often find myself, unfortunately, and it's this. I can't rest. I love my job too much to rest. Now, just know that when you hear somebody say that, or if you say it yourself, oftentimes it's code for this. This is what it really means. <laughs> it's in my job that I find my ultimate sense of identity and self worth. Therefore, I can't rest because I need more of that identity, more of that status, more of that sense of self-worth. All along, as we're articulating these sound bites, we're hearing others articulate these sound bites, we're wearing thin. We're growing more agitated more short in our in interactions with people, perhaps even angry or frustrated over small things in life. I mean, in the big scheme of things, it doesn't take much when we are weary people to just be pushed over the edge. And more than anything, I mean, there are obviously a whole host of other symptoms related to unrest in life when it comes to us on a personal level. But more than anything, it's chipping away at our souls. Which is, as we know biblically, that's the most important part of who we are. It is the essence of who we are. We learned that early in the book of Genesis, when God creates and He breathes life. He breathes life into a, that, that soul becomes living at that point. 
And so we are not created with a body with a soul or as a body with a soul. We're created as a soul with a body. And the body is wasting away, but the soul is eternal. And that's what God cares about the most. But in the midst of unrest, he sees how it's chipping away at our souls. And we have to believe, as Jesus looked out at his audience, you know, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, we'll read it here in just a second. But as Jesus looked out at his audience, he knew this about them. He knew that, yeah, there's weariness. Yeah, there's, there's short with one another. There's, there's anger and frustration because of the unrest. But this is what I most know about the people in my audience, Jesus, 2,000 years ago. Their souls are weary. So he gives this amazing invitation that we have to believe it's still an invitation today, right? And here it is. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your what? Souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I don't know about you, those words cause my heart rate to go down just a little bit. Those words bring a little, bit, a little bit more peace and calm and tranquility to my soul just reading and hearing those words. They are powerful words. It's a powerful invitation. And from it, we gather this idea that rest is not just a good idea. It is a God-ordained idea. It begins with Him. So that's where I want us to begin. I want us to look at God resting in Genesis. And what, what was that all about? What, what are the implications for us today? And then secondly, I want us to look at the people of God are resting in Scripture. A little confused by it initially. The command to rest. But eventually they get with the program and they get with what God believes is best for them and they enter into this rest. And then thirdly, because I do know, <laughs> just based on my own life, some things have chipped away at my soul in this season. As, as new friends of mine here at Pulpit Rock, most of you, I do know this. Um, your soul is probably not at the most peaceful, calm place that God would like for it to be. So he gives us this amazing picture in Scripture. And we're going to look at that and look at the invitation that God invites us into when it comes to this idea of rest. So let's begin with God resting. Again, we find this in Genesis, Genesis 2, verses 2 through 3. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. I love the repetition here in, in the, you know, the Hebrew. I mean, it's just uh, repetitive, you know, lines and phrases and sentences just to make sure that we get the idea of what's going on here. God had done a lot of work. There was a lot of planning, a lot of purpose, a lot of intentionality, which conveys to us that whatever calling or vocation, whatever that looks like for you in life, we're to put our hand to that plow and by God's grace and strength, give it our best for a certain chunk of time. But eventually we get to the point where we need to rest. 
And we notice here that God is not resting because he was exhausted. God does not run the risk of burnout. Think about that. He's never going to break down, never a nervous breakdown. We never find in Scripture where God is, I mean, he is just so anticipating the weekend, right? He is just so looking forward to that summer vacation. He is just so looking forward to that nap in a hammock. It's really quite the contrary when you look at Scripture because we're reminded in Psalm 121, we won't read that, but we know from that psalm that God never sleeps nor slumbers. So what that means is if you happen to doze off in this message, God is still on watch. He just is. When your head hits the pillow tonight, after perhaps a, a day of rest, you get more rest, we can know that God is always on watch, providing, protecting, caring, giving attention to. And it's interesting to me that God is not giving us a command here. He's giving us the gift of, a, of an example and it's a grace gift that he's giving us. I mean, think about this. We're barely two chapters into the book of Genesis, the Bible. And, and God feels compelled to give us an example related to rest that early on in Scripture. What is that about? I think it's about a lot of things, but I can land on one point here, and I think I could say this with confidence. I think God obviously knows, being omniscient, he knew that in this life, in a broken, fallen world, we were going to run hard and run fast and hurry and leave and lead incredibly busy lives. So he gives us a grace gift here as an example because he loves us. We didn't do anything to earn it. <laughs> we don't merit it. But he gives us, that early on in Scripture, this grace gift of rest in the form of an example. What's the takeaway here? Here's what something I've landed on. God is complete without rest. We are depleted without rest. God is complete without rest. We are depleted without rest. So now let's take a look at the people of God resting. We find this a little bit later in the Old Testament, Exodus, Exodus chapter 16. Uh, we, we know that uh, the people of Israel had just been delivered from slavery and bondage in Egypt. Oh, what fun that must have been, right? And up to this point, the people were in slavery. They're helping Pharaoh, this foreign king in a foreign land, build and expand his empire. And oh, what an empire it was. So they've worked hard for Pharaoh in his foreign land. They've worked hard for their food. And now they come to a place in their journey where they're, where they're no longer in Egypt and they're complaining about really not being in Egypt anymore and how well they thought they had it made in Egypt because they're at a place where they have no food. But God is going to gift them with rest. And so we pick up in Exodus chapter 16, verses 4 through 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, 
whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they uh, prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall uh, know that it was the Lord uh, that, that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Skipping down to verses 22 through 26. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, get all the cooking done, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded, commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. This is a reference to them disobeying earlier where it did stink, and there were lots of worms in it. Uh, yummy stuff, I'm sure. But Moses said, uh, eat it today, for today is a, a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. Now, all the people got it, right? All the people said, absolutely, we're all about that plan. We have no confusion here, no doubts, no fears. Not so fast. We drop down to verse 27, picking up with verse 27, and it says this, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather. They went out to work, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of this place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. You know, I just started jotting down, what, what, are some, what are some things that we can learn as a faith community today based on this that happened thousands of years ago? What, what can we learn from this today? I, I think the first takeaway for me was this. We rest out of obedience. We rest out of obedience. Could it be when we are not resting out of obedience, could it be, maybe, potentially, that we don't actually look at the Ten Commandments as Ten Commandments. Maybe we look at it as there are nine commandments and there's one kind of strong suggestion when it comes to this idea of rest, right? The fourth commandment. Could it be that? So we rest out of obedience. Oftentimes, we need rest to recharge and replenish us spiritually or, or emotionally, spiritually, physically, and mentally. But those aren't the only reasons we rest. I mean, that, that's wise to engage in that kind of systematic renewal, if you will. You're expending energy. You've got to, you know, you've got to build back up. You've got to restore the energy you've lost. But that's not the only reason we rest. Rest is relinquishing control. Think about that. It's an orientation of the heart. That's what it is. It, it's saying, God, you, you've gifted me, thank you. You've given me some grace gifts. You've gifted me with time. You've gifted me with talents. You've gifted me with, you know, inviting me into this calling. I didn't deserve that. You've gifted me with this job. And I'm going to give you, by, by your grace and strength, my best for a chunk of time, 
But then there's going to be another chunk of time where I'm going to lean into that and I'm just going to trust your provision. I'm going to get off of the treadmill of desire, of more, of money, ambition, success, impact. We all have a treadmill that we like to run on. and We're going to get off of that treadmill and we're going to say, I'm hitting the pause button on that. No treadmill today. I am resting today. I'm relinquishing control. It's an orientation of the heart. This idea of Sabbath serves to remind us on so many levels that there is indeed a God and we are not Him. There is a God. We're just not Him. On that note, one of my favorite authors by the name of Mark Buchanan, who's written a wonderful book on rest, and it's entitled The Rest of God, has this to say on that note. As soon as I find it here. This is what he says. I love this. He says, the Sabbath, rest, is about imitating God so we stop trying to be God. We imitate God so that we stop trying to be God. That makes a lot of sense to me as I kind of survey my life. You know, I am a stranger to most of you, uh, but I think I can say this with confidence, just knowing something about the state of my own soul at times. There are many weary souls today in this place of worship. The busyness, the keeping up, the running, you know, here, there, and everywhere. All good stuff, I'm sure. All good stuff. But it's taken a toll on our souls. And some of you would be my guests. You've not rested <laughs> in many weeks. In others of you, perhaps it's been months. And there might even still further be a segment of you where you have not rested, truly rested, truly gotten off of whatever your treadmill or treadmills are and rested. And you know deep down, as I often do when I do that, that something, something is not quite right. It's not quite right. And you're not the only one who's noticing it. Those who care about you and love you most they're experiencing the implications of you not resting. So what's the alternative? I mean, it'd be really sad if we just said, let's pray and go home. <laughs> but we're, we're not. There, there, is an, there is a different way to do life. There is a different way to live. And, and Jesus, or uh, it's David of long ago who who paints this incredible picture for us of what, of the rest that God wants to invite us into. Again, it's found in Psalm 23. 
And you know what's interesting about this psalm is we, many of us, perhaps first heard or learned of this psalm maybe at a funeral, maybe in the midst of grieving, in the midst of dying, and, and rightly so. It has brought more people, both Christ followers and I would say not yet Christ followers, more hope and calm and peace into their lives perhaps more than any other passage of Scripture. I think I can say that with confidence. I've used it many times at funerals as a pastor. It brings a deep sense of healing in the midst of the hurt, the pain, the confusion. But you know what? Ironically, it's not a passage of Scripture that's ultimately about death or dying or grieving. It's about a different way to do life and do life under the watchful care and provision and protection of a good shepherd. So I, I want to read these first three verses, and then I want us to look at these just simply one at a time, just one at a time. David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. I don't know about you, but those words are just like a cool water washing over my heart, washing over my soul. It causes my heart rate to go down again. It brings calm and a, and a sense of tranquility to my soul. So one phrase at a time, because with one phrase at a time is one choice at a time. We can make a choice, in other words, to lean into this life that God invites us into as a, as a gift of grace, or we can choose another pathway. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I love the assertion that he makes here. He was choosing to live life under this same Lord, this same God who you know, gave us the grace gift of an example in Genesis 2. He says, this is the shepherd I want leading my life. I want to submit. I want to, I want to fall under his protection and care. No other shepherd. I want this shepherd. And of course, David knew something about shepherding. He was a shepherd. He's the son of a shepherd. David knew the special relationship between sheep and the shepherd. And one step further, he knew that sheep were very, very needy creatures, right? And on that note, it's Philip Keller, a shepherd himself, by the way, who wrote a wonderful book entitled The 23rd Psalm, or Psalm 23. And he has this to say in the book. So Philip Keller says this about sheep. He says, sheep do not just take care of themselves. They require more attention and meticulous care than any other class of livestock. Jonathan has a gift for you if you could stand up and answer this question. Who do you think we are in this psalm? Right? You can thank me later, Jonathan. We are the sheep. We need this constant care and attention, this meticulous care. You know, the alternative here is to live life like I have no shepherd. Or, as Jonathan reminded us a couple weeks ago, it's to 
It's really to identify or invite somebody else into our lives <laughs> wrongly to be our shepherd, to be our, you know, our Savior, our functional Savior, if you will, our Lord, and all the wrong implications related to that. How unrealistic is that, that we would give somebody else that kind of responsibility other than the Lord Himself? And when we do that, we're trying to extract out of somebody else or something to meet a need in us and satisfy something within us that only God Himself can satisfy or meet within us. That's the unrealistic expectations. And, and then if I'm choosing to live life as if I have no shepherd, as if I am the captain of my soul, I am the fate, uh, I, you know, I am, I am controlling my destiny. It's all about me. Really, what's happening here is I'm getting up every day and deciding that I've got this. I don't need a shepherd. I've got my marriage by implication. I've got my finances. I've got my friends. I've got my future. I've got all this stuff under control. And with the stress, stressors, stressors and pressures and inevitable worry that will come with living and choosing that kind of lifestyle. By the way, I once heard somebody say that a good definition of worry is us accepting responsibility for which God never intended us to have. Think about that. But that's what's happening when I'm choosing to live my life without a shepherd, and I'm trying to shepherd my own life, if you will. The Lord is my shepherd. David goes on to say, I shall not want. Because this Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, I want to say first what I don't believe this is about. <laughs> This is not about I can pray for anything I want, the riches, the prosperity, blissful health and happiness in this broken, fallen world, and God is going to shower, shower me. He's going to bestow on my life all of that stuff. I don't think it's teaching that, nor do I think that's biblical. I think what's happening here is David is saying, I know under the watchful care of this shepherd that he's going to take care of my basic, essential needs in life. That's what a shepherd's going to do for me. That's what this shepherd is going to do for me. And I find it interesting that the phrasing here is not, it's not past tense, I did not want. It's not present tense, I do not want. It is looking towards the future and claiming with great confidence, I shall not want. How could anybody make a statement like that? I think it's, I think it's made by looking in a rearview mirror and seeing how God has been at work in your life, providing, meticulously caring, protecting, and, and taking care of you for all those days, months, weeks, years. So we can say with confidence that as I, as I look through the windshield of life, moving in that direction, moving forward, I know I shall not want because of what he's done presently, yes, but maybe even more so in the past, historically. I shall not want. And we know Scripture is replete with God reminding us that he doesn't want his children to be in a place of want. He just doesn't want that for us. 
I just want to, I want to share one passage of Scripture with you that reminds us of this. This is Matthew 6, verse 33, and it's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been teaching, obviously, you know, started in Matthew 5, it goes through chapter 7, but here we are in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And he's been teaching on this idea of worry. You know, his, the people that he was talking to 2,000 years ago in that culture, it was a very agrarian culture. It was kind of, you know, hand-to-mouth, gathering, if you will, as a gathering culture. So they're worried about the most essential needs in life. What are we going to drink? What are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? And, and Jesus, you know, I'm thinking, somebody had to respond to this 2,000 years ago when he said that. He said, consider the birds of the air. Like, birds of the air? We're starving over here. And you're talking about the birds of the air? And what he's doing in that moment is he's, he's reminding us he's sovereign and providential over all creation. If he can take care of the birds of the air and clothe the flowers of the field and their beauty, is he not going to take care of us as well and provide for us? And of course he, he will. So he puts the exclamation point on his teaching in that section with this. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to be anxious about it. I'm going to provide for you. I don't want my children to be in want. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You know, when I think of this phrase, there's a, there's a pastor that comes to mind in Haiti. And about every 18 months or so, we on the Pastor Serve team, we lead and host and plan out a pastoral retreat for, for Haitian pastors and their spouses and we don't give them much at this conference some space to rest and a gift back basket really just filled with the essential needs of life a blanket a couple books to you know so he can help build his library some soap some lotion a bottle of water or two, clean water. And this is Pastor Claude here. And I get to see him, we get to see him every time we go to Haiti. And you can tell by this man's expression who he's praising and thanking here. Uh, it, it's, not, it's not me or my colleague Wesley there refreshing this man's heart and soul. It's, it's God doing that. God meeting some basic needs in his life. Oh, that I would have the heart posture of Pastor Claude in Haiti. He shall not want. He knows who his shepherd is. And then David goes on to say, he makes me lie down in green pastures. I mean, it, the, the Hebrew here is, is fascinating to me because it really means the tender grass. I mean, this is this is grass that's not even mature enough to mow yet. This is the early nutrient-rich grass. I mean, can you imagine a sheep pulling up to this pasture and saying, that's amazing. No thanks, I think I'll graze over here instead. I mean, no sheep would do that. And this is the pasture that, that God, the, the, the Lord, the shepherd of our lives is inviting us into. But what's you know, what, what's a little confusing here to some, and even me at times, is does he really make me lie down in these green pastures? Would, would the Lord, our shepherd, do that? Would he make me lie down 
in this tender, nutrient-rich pasture here? And the answer is, if we, it's what I've arrived at, if we do not get off the treadmill, whatever treadmill that is in life, could it be that God would bring us to a place where that does happen in a loving, gracious, patient way? I've heard one pastor say, this is where God perhaps would bring a crisis into your life, a sickness, a death, the loss of a job, where he puts you in a place where you have nothing else to do but rest. You have nothing else to do but cry out in desperation for his intervention. In rest. As I surveyed my own life a little bit, I would have to say there is a measure of truth in that again as I look in the rearview mirror. And God's, I think of God's will, it always crystallizes more in the rearview mirror than it does as us as we're driving through life and looking out the windshield of life when it comes to God's will for our lives. We can connect the dots looking back that way. It's not always easy to discern as we're looking out the windshield of life. But God does it because he loves us. He makes us lie down. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. This is a powerful picture here. And if making us lie down in green pastures is about a potential crisis or God saying, I'm going to bring you to this point, Wade, where you will listen, you will recognize, you will accept this grace gift that I'm lovingly trying to give you, you're going to enter into it one way or the other because it's what's best for you. If that's what making us lie down in green pastures is all about, living beside still waters with Jesus, our Lord, our shepherd, is about what he wants for us on a continual basis. And sometimes we do it for a day. Sometimes it's a little more extended in nature. Maybe it's three days. Maybe it's a Sabbath on steroids like Thomas has been on for the past three or four months, a sabbatical. But just being by those, those quiet waters, those still waters. I'm a fly fisherman at heart, and uh, I don't know if there's any other way to fish, by the way. But anyway, don't throw anything at me right now. Uh, here in Colorado, it's amazing. But this is one thing I know about fly fishing here in Colorado, or any place, is it's the quiet waters, the still waters, that are the deep waters. Usually. That's where the fish stack up they are wise enough to know to stay out of the chaotic, the noisy, the, you know, class three, four, five rapids because they're going to expend a lot of energy there. That's not going to be a very calming, peaceful lifestyle for them. And so they're wise enough to hang out in the deeper pools, the still waters that are slowly moving along. Another translation here, instead of still waters or quiet waters, is restful waters where we can reflect on God's deep love for us, his meticulous care for us. And we, we can be reminded that he is at work in our lives. He leads us beside these still waters. So what's the significance of making me lie down or leading me beside these still waters? What, what is the outcome 
that Jesus cares about the most here. We find it in this next phrase, and it's this. He restores my soul. That's where he restores my soul. You see, my soul is not restored through the noisy, chaotic, turbulent life and pathway that I oftentimes like to live and walk and run on. That's not ultimately where Jesus restores my soul. It's in this kind of sacred space where he's got my attention. And I can just reflect on his goodness and all the needs that he's meeting in my life. And while it may not always be crystal clear what he's up to, I lean into this because he's given it to me as a grace gift. You know, and so there are times I wonder, and I've made some notes on this in my life prior to today, <laughs> how do I know when my soul needs to be restored? Here's several, several ways that I know. Perhaps some of these would stick with you, and perhaps you could think of some others yourself or to add to this list. I know I need my soul restored when the little things put me over the edge. I know I need my soul restored when I can't sleep and I don't feel like getting up. I know I need my soul restored when my days are too full and my heart is too empty. I know I need my soul restored when I know this activity is wrong, whatever that is that I'm engaged in, and the Spirit is just convicting me about this, but I lack the self-control to move away from it and engage in a God-honoring activity. I know I need my soul restored when that's going on. And I know I need my soul restored when I stop noticing the fact that others in my life also need rest. I'm just not cognizant of it. I'm numb to it, maybe even oblivious to it, maybe even negligent related to it. It's, it's fascinating to me that when you read the words from the fourth commandment, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, the communal nature of the command. You see, God didn't just stop with, Wade, this is about you or that's, it's about you. He brings others into the picture here. He, hear the words. Remember the Sabbath day, uh, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and, all, and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your maidservant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. There's a community aspect to resting. It's not just about me. It's about how can I make sure my wife rests well? How can I do that for our, our son, Ben, our daughter, Kelsey, her husband, Jay. How can we do that? How can we, in a church setting, in a faith community like this, how, how can we, you know, be creative about 
giving others rest and, and maybe even noticing that, okay, I've been given a gift of rest. I've experienced it. I, I know the difference it's making in my life. And now I want to make sure that I grace somebody else with this gift, that I make it possible for this person to rest. Just some quick ideas here on this idea of rest. Set aside some focused time each week to pray and to play. To pray and to play. Get horizontal. Kick back. Relax. Make that segment of time. If it's 24 hours, great. Six hours, great. Ten hours, great. Whatever it may be for you, maybe it's a fasting from technology. No email. No Twitter. No social media. I'm just going to fast from that stuff because it's become a little distracting at times. Thirdly, be honest about what this time is doing for you before the Lord. Journal it maybe. What's God stirring in your heart? What is he teaching you about himself? What is he teaching you about you? What is he showing you? Have the courage to write down some doubts, fears, potential anxieties related to what that, is, what that time is about. What's it stirring in you? And then help make it possible for others to rest. You know, in the life of this church, my guess is there are lots of volunteers who make Pulpit Rock run well. That's the case in any church, especially this size. If you're perhaps not serving in this season, what would it look like for you to maybe have the eyes and the sensitivity to give somebody else a break? Say, I'll take, I'll, I'll put my hand to that plow for a while. May, may not be where God has ultimately gifted me, but you know what? I want to give you the gift of rest here because I know how it important, important it is to restoring your soul. You have allowed that to take place with Thomas. Thank you. In my position, in the line of work I get to do, I can say this with confidence, a very small percentage of pastors overall truly get to take a sabbatical. I know he doesn't take it lightly, nor do the pastoral staff and elders and other leaders within this church. And I just want to come in as an outsider and say thank you for the gift of grace and rest that you've given Thomas. And as Jonathan said a few moments ago, give him space when he it goes through the re-entry. You know, there's always pre-sabbatical, during sabbatical, and post-sabbatical. Post-sabbatical, by the way, can oftentimes be the most difficult because you're trying to integrate some of these rhythms and pacing in your life that you learned while you were on sabbatical. And, and something else to keep in mind, um, love him well. I know you'll do it beyond the re-entry as well, but be patient, love him well in the re-entry. Give him space. Jonathan said it best, you know, just care for him, express love to him. It's good to have you back. There may be some things that Thomas may never share with you or me or Jonathan or others. It may simply be a Thomas and Jessica thing or a Thomas and his family thing because maybe it's so personal that it wouldn't be appropriate to share from a platform like this in a public place of worship like this. Just give him space. 
but I want to thank you for putting together one of the most incredible sabbatical plans that I have ever seen. In fact, I'm going to plagiarize it. Now, I'm going to ask for permission to use that in some other settings because it's been done so, so well. You know, the Lord is your shepherd. He wants you to not be in that place of want. If he has to, there might be a season in your life where he makes you lie down by green pastures. He certainly wants to leave you beside still waters so you can reflect on all that he is and all that he does for you and just rest in that. Because what does it do for us? It's what he most cares about. He restores our soul. He's in the soul restoration business, and for that, we can be deeply, deeply grateful. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this faith community called Pulpit Rock, doing the wonderful things that you've equipped and you've led them to do. You continue to lead them to do in their missional efforts inside these walls, outside of these walls. I'm just grateful for your bride called Pulpit Rock Church, grateful for the pastoral staff, grateful for the folks who think of this place as their church home. And Father, I pray that in the days ahead, they, as they lean in perhaps to this idea of, of rest, that the grace and the gift that you're giving would be magnified in their lives to the point where, yes, we know about their missional activities in this community, but Father, help them to also be known even more so as a faith community that rests well by your grace and strength. I offer them up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.